Good morning, everybody. And I know, um, contrary to your most obvious observations, I am not from Holland, Michigan. I did not grow up here. Um, I grew up in a place called India, and so when you grow up in a place like India, the you, you kind of grow up with a lot of different things than you're used to in Holland, Michigan. And one of my favorite things growing up in India was uh, watching my Cocker Spaniel dog get constantly irritated by the monkeys that would come into our neighborhoods. And they would steal fruit tree, I mean fruits from the fruit trees from our neighbors, and they had like jackfruits and papayas, and it was always chaos. But then they would sit and taunt my, my dog. But monkeys in general in India are a very curious creatures. They always travel together in packs, and when you grow up surrounded by this sort of wildlife, um, you make some interesting observations. So one of my favorite stories involves when um, a group of monkeys gather and you, you place a bowl of hot soup in front of them. They all gather, they want to eat the soup, but they don't know how hot the soup is. Right? So they all gather around and some of the more curious monkeys will kind of put their faces about that bowl to kind of gauge from that vapor. Maybe that's how you know how hot it is, but you all know it's not really a good clue. And just when you think they're ready to give up, a big monkey will take a little monkey's hand and dip it in the soup. <laughs> and, and when the little monkey screams, they're like, all right, it's not, it's not ready yet. Um, I say this because oftentimes, you know, I, in my job, um, I have the privilege of, of traveling everywhere and speaking at a variety of different churches, and um, I just often feel like that little monkey. I have no idea what I'm going to get. And uh, that is not at all my experience this morning. And coming to Christ Memorial, this has been a couple of times I've been here. It's always been such a warm welcome. I want to thank Pastor Eric and Pastor Mike and, and just meeting with the, with the leaders of our worship service this morning. Um, your warm hospitality, it means so much uh, to me. And as somebody who serves the Reformed Church in the capacity that I do, um, I also know the tremendous impact Christ Memorial has um, locally, as we just saw in the, in the video, but also globally. Um, your impact reaches South Africa, and India, and Colombia, and Cambodia, and so many other places. And so I just want to say thank you on behalf of all our missionaries and partners that you have directly supported over the years, um, but for others as well, knowing that we have a church like yours that kind of walks with us on this incredible journey in a beautiful world that God has called us to love. Um, we are just honored uh, to partner with you. So, so thank you. This morning's scripture passage, I'm going to, little spoiler, I know in January 14 you're going to do the immerse uh, experience, um, but I'm going to go into Genesis anyway today if you're okay with it. Uh, I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 6 and I'm going to read verses 5 through 22. It's a familiar passage that we're going to use as a backdrop upon which we're going to lean into what God might be teaching us today. So this is what Genesis 6 verse 5 begins with. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. 
And these are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth will die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every kind shall come into you, to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are so many wonderful nuggets embedded for our benefit in this passage. And when I was a kid, Noah's Ark, as I would imagine for every kid, fascinated me. And now maybe it was the fact that I grew up with English not being my primary language, but I, I never bothered to ask myself, why did we call it an ark and not a boat? Because this whole thing is about a boat. I only say this because I was very disappointed later on in scripture when the ark of the covenant showed up and I was like, oh great, another boat story. And they're like, no, no, it's just a box. And then, you know, like it also happened again when Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount and I was thinking, is this a snake story? And then I was like, nope, sermon and serpent are different things. But in this passage, there are, like, the story that we read here, there are many arguments for and against this tale of a universal flood. Questions are being raised. Is this a global event? Is this a local event? And then every ancient culture around the world has some sort of a flood account. And the questions become, how do they corroborate with each other? Are they places where they agree? Where are they different? And all of those things would make for an excellent cup of conversation um, at Ferris someday, just not this morning. And whatever conclusion we reach regarding the geographical extent of this flood account that we heard this morning, we should not let that speculation detract us from the facts of God's judgment and grace that are so powerfully evident in this traumatic tale. But neither should we overlook the remarkable life of the central figure, Noah. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer will say this about Noah. He said, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This dude made it to the hall of fame for faith. 
And Noah's faith began way before the flood, right? I mean, it's remarkable that even during this year-long account of the flood, we don't again hear God speaking to Noah. Noah trusted God through thick and thin, and whether he could see God or not. It also says in Scripture that Noah was righteous before God, which is another way of saying it probably irritated a whole bunch of other people. And one commentator in particular said, isn't it funny how the same sun can melt wax and harden clay? The sun's properties don't change, right? But the properties upon which the sun's rays find, those properties are revealed by the sun's heat. And similarly, whether it is the sun shining, the seed landing, the word being preached, or the glowing testimony of a believer, that same rule applies. Now, if I were to do an unofficial poll of all of you here and ask you, would you rather be the fragrance of Christ or the aroma of death, I think I know where you all will probably lean. But unfortunately, we don't get to choose what we are because that is going to be determined by the reaction of those to what we say and do, right? And so by building this ark, Noah offers salvation to those who would respond in faith. And those who entered into this ark, it must have been a most amazing blessing and delight. But for those who rejected it, who refused it, this must have been the most awful statement of loss and dismay as the ark disappeared into the mist. Our own Lord Jesus would later on say this about Noah. He said, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Life was going on even though this strange old man was building this massive boat with nowhere to sail it. And eventually, eventually the righteous judgment of the offended Lord falls, and in the midst of this horror, sails a man and his family secure in the serenity of a faith which released the resources of God's grace. So here's a little hypothesis I want to throw out for your consideration this morning. I believe that Noah was the first missionary in human history. And as somebody who serves the Reformed Church in my role, I keep wondering, what would it have been like if I got Noah's resume sent to me based on his story documented in Scripture? And and if you haven't read the whole story of Noah, I would really encourage you to take a look at it this week. Because Noah's first words in Scripture are actually found a little later in Genesis 9. His first three words in Scripture are, Cursed be Canaan. Because after surviving this unbelievable tale of universal destruction, Noah essentially becomes a gardener. He plants a vineyard, gets drunk from that, and then lays naked in shame, and then is discovered by his son. And when he's discovered by his son, Noah goes on to curse him. It's kind of the often overlooked part of Noah's story. But this is a terrible way for one of our Hall of Fame faith leaders to wrap up his story. And yet, isn't that in some sort of a strange way appropriate that the people that God chooses are people just like us, broken, covered in shame, forgetful of God's providence and saddling the next generation with our baggage? There's something profoundly beautiful and telling about God's agency in this world in spite of our own human failings. And that's kind of where I would like to draw your attention to this morning. The first observation I want to offer for you is that God's divinely ordained work is still hard work. 
Before I stepped into this role, I've been a director for about five years. Prior to that, I served for about 15 years as a missionary with the Reformed Church with my family in India. And my family has been in the business of getting scripture recorded in audio for people who cannot read and write. So initially, the ministry began with a focus on people who are non-literate. And slowly, it kind of spilled over into oral communities. And then it started going even further into communities where people were dealing with visual impairments. And the ministry's impact began to spread far and wide in India. And it finally began to hit people for whom social stigmas prohibited them from accessing God's word. And one particular group that we work extensively, extensively with and continue to do so are people with this dreaded ancient disease called leprosy. And we, had, we have done tremendous work with them. And, and, and as word began to spread, all these different villages or colonies would call us to come and give scripture in their heart language. That was their only way of accessing scripture. Now, we've done this work so well, and I had, you know, in the meantime, moved into this role. And so my brother and my family, they were working in one particular village called Tokampati. They had done extensive work of setting up listening groups, discipleship programs, and they were just, they became their family. They became friends, and they became very close. So after one particular visit in Tokampati, they were just sitting around having a conversation. And my brother for whatever reason, looked at them and said to them, is there anything else you need? And at which point they looked at him and kind of very hesitantly looked and said to him in Tamil, which is my heart language, Tanila, which means there's no water. And my brother said, well, that makes no sense. There's a well right outside the community. And they said, yes, but we don't have access to that well because the moment somebody with leprosy touches that well, the well is considered poison. So they're prohibited from accessing that water. So then he found out, like, how are you getting water? And they said, well, we have to collect our money. To get, we pool our money together and have the city send a truck. Again, people with leprosy are not employable. Um, they're considered cursed. And so nobody wants to hire them. And so their only means of bringing any income in is through begging. So they beg and they have a very meager stash of rupees and they pull it together and have the city send a truck. And whenever they can afford one, the city will send a truck. And again, nobody wants to interact with them. So the truck will park itself outside the village and the guy driving the truck will open up the little spigot on the side and the water just shoots out. And the people at Tokampati will have to go and collect whatever water they can. And, and they do. And, and I had this heartbreaking video of them just standing in front of this truck holding these plastic utensils and whatever they have in their homes. And you also have to remember leprosy also. You know, people with leprosy eventually lose use of their fingers. They lose their toes. So they're hobbling to this vehicle. They can barely hold these vessels together. And this water is just shooting out at this rapid pace. So whatever they collect, then they kind of gently jostle it back to their homes, and every drop of water becomes so important. They'll use the water, and then they collect the water that they use, and they use it again, and they use it again, and they use it again. And my brother said, by the end of the day, they've used the same water four to five times, and there's a little video of this water, just this thick, dark, viscous fluid, and that was it. There is no water. And then he said, hey, does the RCA have any sort of funding to help them dig a well so they'll have water in their own community. And we do. It's called the care network. And so we said, well, we'd love to do that, but is there even water in Tokampati? And so they consulted with local hydrologists and they said, yes, 600 feet, there's water. And so we were able to send a grant over 
And it was July 30, 2019. I mean, you talk about excitement, right? I mean, in the most heart-wrenching, hard places, people have dignity and pride. And that was no different in Tokumpati. On that day, they all wore their finest clothing. You could see the kids dancing, the women wearing their resplendent saris, the men excited. And the social media feeds of our ministries, Instagram and Facebook, were just filling with updates of the excitement and anticipation of what this day would bring. The truck shows up to, to pierce the soil for the first time, and you can just feel the excitement. It's like, it's palpable, if that is even possible to the virtual uh, web. And then the update starts coming. 50 feet we've gone, and there's kids dancing around, and it's 100 feet. About 200 feet, the updates get a little slower. 300 feet, 400 feet. At 600 feet, you begin to send some worry creeping in, in the subtext of whatever's being posted, because there's still no water. And they keep going, 700 feet, 800 feet. At 900 feet, the soil that is coming out is wet with a promise of water. And then they go 1,200 feet, the deepest point that this Borwell company could go that day, and they hit this point and they hear this poof, and they got a puff of dust. And I remember this picture of there's this hole in the ground, and all of these people still wearing their bright colored clothes, and yet their faces are now wrinkled with disappointment and, and sadness, and they're holding this you know, the traditional Indian namaste pose, except, you know, they're missing fingers and, and praying, hoping against all odds that there will be a miracle that happens there. And there was none. And the last, the last post on July 30 was simply this. It was, we went 1,200 feet and we found no water, just dust. We don't know why God let this happen, but to God be the glory. And so I called my brother up, and I was like, how you doing? And he said, you should have, he was sobbing uncontrollably on the phone. He said, you should have been there. You know how hard it is to stand there with people and watch that happen? It was awful. And every day we would talk. We did not fully understand it back then. But we were asked to simply stand with our brothers and sisters that day and let that dust of disappointment coat our every pore. And every conversation that my family and I had after that day, we felt that there was something profound emerging from the pain of witnessing a puff of dust when you long for a fountain of water. Because all you wanted to do was provide water to these beautiful people, a cup of water, a straight up, straight up cliche from the New Testament. And yet we observe that even our most hopeful and altruistic expectation, it still perpetuates this age-old myth of people who have everything coming to help people who have nothing. Certainly, don't get me wrong, providing water that day would have been the most beautiful, amazing thing. But I truly believe a greater story was taking place that day when we stood with people who had no hope and watched together disappointment sweeping over all of us. Because, you know, that is the reality of every resident in Tokampati. This is how it's always been, one disappointment after the other. And what we felt on that historic day, July 30, 2019, was a taste of what every day was like for our brothers and sisters. And we stood with them 
in their moment of pain that day and we felt that crushing cloud of disappointment envelop us like that dust cloud that hovered over that pit of useless hope. And you could do nothing but stand shoulder to shoulder with the least of these. To understand God, it's imperative that due consideration be given not only to God's righteous indignation, but also to God's grace. The heart of God constantly overflows in loving kindness and tender mercies toward his children. I mean, honestly, if the whole world was indeed wicked like we read, wouldn't it be easy to just destroy it all and start from scratch? I mean, we're in Genesis 6. Let's scroll back five chapters. Start over. Why do you have to deal with the 600-year-old guy who only wants to plant a vineyard and get drunk eventually? This old guy now has to build a boat, collect animals, float around for a year, and have a less-than-stellar finish. Is that worth it? And God would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And this would prove itself all through Scripture. It's from God who led his people, right, his stubborn people into the promised land. And when they get there, they decide, oh, we don't, wanna, we don't want God, we want a king. So God says, okay. And the kings that they have are mostly terrible. And yet God constantly loves them and woos them back to himself. And the ultimate fruit of God's labor shows up in the form of God's own son who enters this world as a humble babe, collects a ragtag team of nobodies, and dies a brutal death for the sake of people who didn't know him then and many who still don't know him now. Is it all worth it? Wouldn't it be better to simply trash it all and start from scratch? Because sometimes all you want is for that ground to provide a cold cup of water to the least of these, and the ground does nothing but yields dust upon dust. And yet you, my friends, are called to stand coated in this glitter of dust in a world that waits to be disappointed yet again and to squint into it and watch God do what God does. And it's also encouraging that all through Scripture and all through life, God always has his witnesses. And at no time in human history have things gotten so dark that not a ray of light shone for God. There has always been a Noah. And in this season, the question we need to ask ourselves is, could it be us? The second reflection I have for you is that God's agency in this world, it involves ordinary human beings. I mean, speaking of Noah, I mean, God's choice in human beings, it makes me very queasy, and the more I think about it, maybe a little comforted. Because most of the people we see God choosing in Scripture are oddities. They're kind of lesser people. They come broken, and within God's providence, they learn to choose better and to work within God's will to bless so many. And a simple glance at Jesus' disciples will tell you that, but we see that all through Scripture. We see that when God chooses Jacob over Esau and Isaac over Ishmael and David over Eliab and Mary over Martha and Ruth over Orpah. This creative initiative, that belongs to God. The, the, the willing obedience, though, that belongs to Noah. Grace flowed from the heart of God. Faith appropriated it into the heart of Noah. And God's eternal purposes, they go on to their relentless conclusion. And however reluctant we are to admit it, 
Eventually, we must concede that the best ideas do come from God, and they're never less than ideal. And to believe it more fully is to know God more thoroughly. Another way to look at it is kind of like, this is the story of calling. I love, if you haven't already been able to tell, I love telling stories. And so I feel like since I've stepped into this role, God has given me keys to the candy store. I have access to some of the best stories from around the world. And I want to share with you one of my favorite stories in the last five years. And it involves a person from Holland, Michigan, about 120 years ago. His name was Samuel Zwamer, who decided he was going to be the first person we would send to the Middle East. Samuel Zwamer shows up to the Middle East, and as is often the case in the country of Bahrain in particular, in order to do any work, you start by meeting with the king. So Samuel Zwamer shows up at the king's court and says to the king, Your Majesty, I need a piece of land. And on that land, I will build a hospital and a school to both take care of your people, but also to educate and, and train. And most of the education was really for the women in that country who were not given education. The king listens to this impassioned plea and dismisses Samuel Zweimer and then has, has a consultation with the rest of the king's court. And the king's court, they're like, well, your majesty, whatever you do, do not give that man land because he's a Christian. He's here to convert our people. So whatever you do, don't give him land. And the king listens to this very wise counsel and says, oh, okay. Resolved and comfortable in the decision of his wise court, the king goes to bed and that night, the king had a dream. And in that dream, God appeared to the king and said, the man who was in your court today, treat him with favor because through him, your land will be blessed. So the king gets up the next morning and against the wishes of the entire court, gives Samuel Zwemer land upon which Samuel Zwemer would go on to establish the American Mission Hospital, the Ulrich School, and the National Evangelical Church, the only recognized church in Bahrain. Um, all three of those institutions are thriving to this day. And here's the, the crazy part. After all of this happened, a few years later, oil was discovered in the Middle East. And as the country rose exponentially, I mean, burst itself into the global scene in terms of influence and importance, the royal family never forgot it. They tie the rise of Bahrain to the favor they showed one of God's servants, Samuel Zwamer. You know how I know this story? It's because this story was told to me by the current head, the chief medical officer of the uh, American Mission Hospital, who was told this story by the, by the crown prince of Bahrain. This is a story that is passed on in the royal family, that whoever sits on the throne does not forget the reason why they believe their country as is prosperous and wealthy as it is. And, and Bahrain has taken on a very important role geopolitically. You talk about peace in the Middle East. Bahrain is an island that sits between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So as far as diplomacy is concerned, the U.S. has the fifth fleet of the U.S. Navy permanently docked in Bahrain. Any sort of conversation that happens about Middle East involves conversations with the royal family in Bahrain. And, and sitting U.S. presidents and other dignitaries, every time they sit and acknowledge the strong partnership the United States shares with Bahrain, they are reminded by the Muslim ruler, while we are grateful for what we have with the United States, make no mistake about it. It's the missionaries we're most grateful for. 
God went on ahead of Zwemer and moved in a miraculous way. And in some ways, Zwemer, all he had to do was show up in front of the king and ask him for what he wanted. Now, I can't imagine the sort of courage it took to do that, but it's the same sort of courage we see Noah exhibiting in the story too, right? And in both of these stories, God showed up. But Noah wasn't, when Noah was called to do this, Noah wasn't asked to save the world. Noah was asked to be faithful. Samuel Zwemer wasn't asked to save the Middle East. Zwemer was asked to be faithful. God's agency in this world involves ordinary people. And the last part of it is the story of God is so much grander than you and I can ever imagine. We are ordinary people called to extraordinary things in extraordinary times. But if this was a play, this play unfolds with interruptions that dash our hopes initially, right? But these puffs of dust, they're not too much for the gospels in breaking. It is here that we're invited not to be spectators, but characters in God's orchestration, to squint into the swirling dust and watch God breathe new life into it. Maybe from all of this, maybe from all of this, God can bring forth water that springs up to eternal life. Somebody, when I told this Weimar story, was like, that happened 120 years ago. So what? And I was like, here's the so what. In 2019, just before uh, all of this unfolded, I was actually in Bahrain because the king had just, the current king of Bahrain had just given us land to build the fifth King Hamad American Mission Hospital. And I was there for the, the inauguration of that land. And earlier this year, a small delegation from the RCA went to Bahrain for the opening of that hospital. This is a state-of-the-art hospital that prides itself as being one of the top-notch hospitals in the world, funded almost entirely by the royal family in Bahrain with one caveat, that RCA Global Mission build a chapel in the middle of it, and the hospital will be built around this chapel. And that chapel will be staffed by an RCA chaplain. That was the caveat. And so the people who designed Western Seminary's Boulder Chapel were the same people who designed the chapel at the American Mission Hospital in Bahrain. That story continues. And then a few months after that well incident, my brother was at a train station in Bangalore, and he sees somebody begging. And he sees her face, and he recognizes her as a, as a friend from Tokumpati. And he said, um, he gives her this big hug, and, and again he tells her how sorry he is that they could not bring water that day. And she said to him, brother, don't be sad. Every morning we gather around that hole in the ground and we pray. Don't worry, brother, God will provide. I mean, that scene is beautiful because here you have this person, this beggar on a train station in Bangalore being my brother's pastor that night. And then it's a, it's a tropical country. The monsoons just ravage the plains of South India. And then we get that phone call, right, from Tokampati. And they're like, brothers, we think there might be some water down there, but, but we won't open it. Can you come? Let's do this together. And so my brother and a team from our office in India went back to Tokampati. And actually, I have a little clip of that moment. I wanted you to partake in it with me. 
stories in the world of mission to begin with these stories of pain and disappointment and yet it's from puffs of dust that God breathed new life into Adam and into a world my friends that is ravaged by war and pestilence indeed from these puffs of dust there emerge pockets of grace and so we find ourselves today coated again in that layer of dust and we're invited to squint into it and watch God breathe new life into our parched land again and to make these pockets of grace arise. So yes, I'm grateful that even though God's divinely ordained work is hard work, that God uses ordinary people like me to be a part of it, and ordinary people like you, and that we get to be a part of a story that is so much grander than you and I can ever imagine. Well, that's good news. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for inviting us to be a part of your story for choosing us because, not, of our, not because of our abilities, but because you want to do something amazing through us, for calling us to important tasks in this world, even if it's hard, for stories that fill scripture, that start with puffs of dust and end with pockets of grace. And so go with us in this week. May we, coated as we are in this layer of dust, squint into this dust cloud and watch you work another miracle. In Jesus' name, amen.